Welcome to the Mustang UMC podcast recorded each Sunday morning during our 8.30 and 10.50 a.m. services. We invite you to join us in praise and worship during that time, and our hope is that this podcast serves as an encouragement for you and for your family in your daily life. So we remain rised and we remain in tune to God and God's word. And so here, let us listen to the word of the Lord. Today's scripture comes from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. There was a certain man of Ramathium Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkinah, the son of Jehoahim, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraite. It's, my sermon is now easier after this, so we can just move on. All right. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship, and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb and her rival. And so it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the infliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him the Lord all the days of my life and no razor shall touch his head. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You all may be seated. Let us pray. And so, Lord, we do pray that your word and your truth would be with us and that we would hear this word and you would shape and form our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The hardest funeral I've ever done as a pastor was for a six-year-old boy who was shot and murdered by his mother, who also shot shot his older brother and then turned and shot herself. Where is God in a tragedy like that? I I certainly didn't know what words to say. Um, I certainly didn't know how do I respond. There's just, there was no sense in any of that. The mental illness that was involved, the drug use that was involved, the tragedy that it was, the people that it affected. I mean, it had me asking, where are you, God? And we probably have all found ourselves there. 
Maybe it's with something that, that happened in the world and we just said, God, where are you? How could you let this tragedy happen? Maybe it's something that, that happened to you. Something, some pain, time after time after time, and you wondered, God, if you're good, why haven't you done something about it? God, if you're good, where are you? And, and sometimes it happens so personally to us. Year after year, we've been waiting for God to move, and it feels like and it seems like God is silent. And so we become angry at God. We become mad at God because we feel like God is not doing anything. And because we don't understand, we often are prone to blame God. And so kids, in box one in your books, I invite you, what is something bad that happened to you that maybe you do not understand? And so sometimes in our journey or in our story, we, we, ask, we seem to ask, God, are you incapable? Is it that you're not able to do something? Because is that a God that we would want to worship, a God who is incapable of doing something good? Or God, are you unwilling to do something good? You're able to, but you just don't. Or maybe you are not good at all. And so we ask ourselves these questions, God, where are you? And in, in the midst of this sermon series on daring to forgive, and we've been in this journey of forgiveness for a while, well, today I want to look at the question of, of, can we forgive God? And if so, how do we forgive God? And what does that look like for us to be people who engage with God? Should we forgive God? Now, I want to be clear up front is our theology, our understanding of God is that God does not sin, that God does not do wrongs. He does not say, hmm, I'm going to punish this person just for the fun of it, right? This is not who we believe God can be. And so for us to forgive God in the sense that he has done something to, um, he has sinned against us is not consistent with our theology. But that still sometimes means that there is this pain that we felt. And so I think it's important for us to understand, and I'm going to frame it in these ways, there's a difference between wrongs and hurts. All right, and wrongs are these intentional acts by people that have caused harm. Um, that, that we see this, uh, you, you know, maybe you've done this to somebody, you know, you've, you've said something and you knew that it would hit them right in their sore spot. That you knew that if you said these words, it would hurt and you did it anyway. Or somebody did that to you, there is this wrong. But there are also this idea of hurts, these non-intentional acts that have caused harm and that, that have affected people. You know, one of the ways that I think about it is uh, uh, we are, are, are proud parents of some Mustang students. Now, both of our kids have been quarantined multiple times. Now, do I believe that they were sitting up there at the beginning of the year and thinking, you know what, let's just take it out on the Tiger Boys this year. Let's get them. Let's make them be home with their parents even more than they've been. Of course not. I don't think that. They've been doing their absolute best, and I've been so impressed with our school district to do their absolute best um, in order to, to try to do that. But it's hurt our kids' education. It's hurt our family, but it's certainly not intentional. Now, I can be bitter about it. I can be frustrated about it. I can be angry about it. I can feel the emotions of pain, but I don't always attribute the blame, but I still sometimes do, is that my anger needs to go somewhere. And what I believe happens is that whenever we experience wrongs or hurts, whenever we experience harm, we attribute blame. And sometimes it's people and sometimes it's ourselves, but sometimes it is God. And when it's God, when we attribute blame to God is that we build a wall between ourselves and God. And this wall becomes a wedge that separates us 
from the fullness of God's grace. In fact, there are some people who will not grace the sanctuary of any church because they are so mad at God because of something that happened. That years ago, they prayed for somebody to be healed, and that person wasn't healed, and in fact, they passed away, and they said, God, if you were good, or if you were capable, or if you were willing, you could have saved my brother, you could have saved my parents, you could have saved my kid, but you didn't, and I am not going to have anything to do with you. And so they've driven this wall between themselves and God, and you may know somebody who's like that. And so kids in box two, I invite you to draw a picture of a wall between someone and God. Maybe it's you. Maybe you still come to church. Maybe you come to Sunday school. Maybe you do the church things, but you say, God, you know, you don't get all of me because of what I blame you for, because of the hurt that I experienced in the past. I'm going to keep you at an arm's distance. So I may sing the songs, but I'm not going to really worship you. I may study your word, but I'm not going to be transformed by it. And we've separated ourselves. We've had this wall between ourselves and God. And so what I think we can, what we can do is that we can deal with the wall that we've built up between ourselves and God, is that we can tear down the emotional wall that we have set up with God, and that we can do that through the practice of emotional forgiveness, which is really replacing these negative emotions with positive ones, replacing this bitterness and anger that we have with God. And, and as we tear it down, and we're going to talk about how we do that here in just a second, we replace it with an understanding and a peace that we have come with God. And so throughout this whole journey in the Stare to Forgive, we've talked about grace in and grace out, this pattern of life, grace in and grace out. But what happens is, is that when we build a wall, is that we slow the flow. Now, God's still going to chase us. He's still going to come after us. No matter what wall we put up, God is going to try to tear the wall down from his end. But we can slow the flow of grace in our lives, and it certainly makes it harder for grace to leave us. And so if you're sitting there today and you are struggling with the idea, and, and maybe you have this pain and this angerness and bitterness towards God, you are not alone. In fact, this is a, a normal experience, and our scriptures speak to it. And the scripture and the story of Hannah especially speaks to it. Now, what we have is a, a family in the Old Testament um, that we are dealing with. There is the husband, Elkanon, there is Hannah, and there is Penina. Now, these, um, this, this family, we need to understand a little bit of the dynamics. It seems a little strange for us, for somebody to have multiple wives, um, but in those days, it made a little bit more sense. So let me tell you what most likely life was like, is that Elkanon and Hannah were most likely married first. Now, part of the reason in which you have a wife, especially in those days, is to have children and particularly to have a son. On our Wednesday night class, The Epic of Eden, we are particularly learning about the importance of having a son because it was a, a patriarchal society in which the oldest male was responsible for the care of the family. And so if you did not have a son, when your husband passed away, nobody was there to care for you. Who was going to be there for you to care for you? Nobody. So you needed a son and you needed that person who was going to be the head of the overall household. This was incredibly important. And so most likely Elkanon and Hannah were married and they tried to have children. They tried to have children for, I'm going to say three years. It may be eight years. It may be one year. I don't know, but let's just think of it being three years of having children. 
And so imagine the disappointment month after month when she realized she was not pregnant. And so what happened in those days is somebody had to continue the lineage. Now, when we read the Old Testament or even the New Testament, we come across those genealogies with all those terrible names we don't know how to pronounce, all right? And so what we do is we skip through them. They don't mean much to us. But to those people, again, that lineage mattered a great deal. Passing on your bloodline mattered a great, great deal. And so he married a second wife. That would have been common um, in that time. And so he married her. Now, you probably didn't notice in the Scripture, and sometimes um, some of the more important things in the Scripture are small details that we tend to look over. But it talked about that when they went to go sacrifice, on the day when Elkanon sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons, plural, and daughters, plural. Now, what that means is that they had at least two sons and at least two daughters, right? We don't know how many it was, all right? Typically, also in those days, that there would have been children who would not have made it through childbirth or would not have made it to the age of two. So I think we could generously, um, kind of almost conservatively assume that there was at least eight years of marriage between Elkanon and Penina. All right, so imagine, if you will, 11 years of misery that Hannah is experiencing. Think about where you were in 2010, 11 years ago. That seems like, especially because this last year was 25 years, a long, long time. 11 years at least of misery. That when Penina was pregnant, again, your heart broke. Broke. I don't know what it's like for those uh, women, and I know we have some in our church family who, who wa- so desperately want to have a child, but they weren't able to for whatever reason, the pain that exists there. How difficult it was that, that whenever there was crying in the other room, that you just sat there and wept because you, couldn't, you didn't have a baby to care for. How difficult it must have been as, as you looked out in the yard and you saw all these kids playing and you realized that none of them were yours and you were reminded day after day that you weren't good enough, that you didn't have the right purpose and that it felt like God was empty day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade even. The sense of God, where are you? And this is where Hannah was. And one of the things that I I say often up here is, I don't necessarily know your story, but I know that you have one. And maybe some of you are living a story of pain and of darkness and of grief, in which year after year, month after month, decade after decade, you're crying out, God, if you would just answer this prayer. God, if you would just do something about this, this chronic pain that I'm experiencing, Lord, can you please just heal me? Or maybe something happened to a loved one um, in the past and you're still angry and you're still hurting about it and you're still in grief and nobody understands your pain. And this is what grief does is it causes us to feel alone and isolated and our, our hurt becomes more and more pronounced. I remember talking to a lady who lost her husband when she was in her 40s. She said, you know, whenever we said till death do us part in our in our marriage vows, I never imagined that death parting us would happen in my 40s. And she said, one of the hard things about grief is that it feels like everybody else has moved on, but you can't. Everybody else seems happy at Christmas, but you're not. 
Everybody else gathers around the family table, but you are experiencing it alone. And everybody else has moved on, but you can't. So Hannah is deep in grief. Uh, One of the favorite things we are doing right now as a family is on Friday night, we watch WandaVision on Disney+. We like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're big fans. So don't bother us on Friday night, all right? (laughs) But in that show, it deals with Wanda, who is experiencing a great grief, and and Vision, um, who's her husband. He says these words, what is grief if not love persevering? And so here Hannah is experiencing this great grief, and maybe you're experiencing it as well. This love that perseveres and your heart does not be, is not able to move on because you hope for something better. And oftentimes the reason why grief wins is that our hurt is greater than our hope. Our hurt becomes so profound that we deal and we are used to the pain and the brokenness that is experienced there. And people don't understand. And in our story, we get an example of somebody who doesn't understand now, I, as part of our practice of, of my sermon writing, I meet with our staff on Monday. Um, they are, are women, and so they, they give me a different perspective than, than what I typically have. And, and they really stuck to this line that Elkanon said to her. And this is what he said. He said, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? And then he said, Those are, that's fine right there. Up until there, he was doing pretty good. But then he said these words. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Whew, they, they told me right away, that was not a good thing to say. All right, men, take notice. Sometimes the thing you want to say is not the right thing you, want, you need to say, right? He didn't get it. He didn't understand the pain. People don't. You feel alone. You feel isolated in your grief. And you wonder, God, where are you? Why would you let us do that? And so you're Hannah. Your husband doesn't get it. Your sister wife mocks you, irritates you, rubs your face in it as often as she can. And you feel alone, and where do you turn to? Because God seems silent. And so in verse 10, we find this description of Hannah. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Maybe you've been there, deeply distressed, praying to God, crying out to God, and weeping bitterly. God, where are you? So kids in box three, I invite you to draw a picture of Hannah crying as she prays. What does that look like as she pours her heart out to God? But I think in this broken story of Hannah, we can see some of what we can do whenever we feel angry with God, when we feel that God is distant. And so what does the story of Hannah teach us about what to do with our anger towards God? I think there's a few things that it does. The first is is that it tells us that God welcomes our honesty and our anger, that God is big enough to handle the pain and the sorrow that we experience, and he invites us to tell him. Again, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She didn't come to God and pray the prayer that, he, that she thought God wanted to hear. Instead, she prayed the prayer that she needed to pray. And sometimes I think we're afraid that we're going to make God mad by telling him how we feel as if he doesn't already know. And so instead of dealing with our pain, instead of directing our anger towards God, who is big enough to handle it, God is big enough to handle your anger. 
All right? He's heard every word you've ever wanted to say to him before. But we hold back. But that's not the model of Scripture. The model of Scripture actually gives us this idea of lament. We, we, we cry out to God. We're honest with God. We tell him how we feel. We give him our anger, and he can handle it. And what I believe is if we don't release our pain in lament and prayer towards God, then we'll let it out in bitterness towards ourselves and to other people. If we don't lament and tell God how we feel, then we're going to take it out on other people or we're going to take it out on ourselves. Now, we all know that we do this naturally, right? You've had a hard day at work. You come home and your kid does one little thing and you take it out on them, right? Or the dog or the cat. I don't know what we take it out on, but something. And so if we don't release our pain and anger to God, if we don't, if we don't do something with this pain, then we're going to take it out on ourselves or other people. And so we can be honest with God. We can share with God exactly how we feel. And our Bible has many examples of it. It's not just Hannah, but Job is incredibly honest with God and angry with God. And our Psalms are full of Psalms of lament. These people who tell God exactly how it is, exactly how they're feeling, and they're saying, God, do something. Stop sitting up there and move because I need you. I was reading my devotion this morning, and as, as often happens, it speaks a word of truth to us. And it was going through the Psalms, and this is what the person said. He said, consider this, a full one-third of our Psalms, 58 out of 150, are songs of lament. It strikes me that we should assume about one-third of our life is going to be a disappointing mess that many times cannot be resolved, only lamented. Might it be a revolutionary strategy to reset our expectations in light of this and learn how to lament? So God can handle your anger. We don't have to understand everything to cry out to God and to let him have it. In fact, as a pastor, one of the things that I've heard multiple times from multiple people is that one of the most spiritually transforming moments of their life is when they started to be real with God. And maybe they were going out on a walk and they just yelled at God and they told God exactly how they were feeling. They finally released this pent-up anger that they had. Maybe they were driving in a car and they cried out to God um, in which, and they, they told him how they felt and they asked him to do something. They finally released it. And so maybe the best thing that you can do today is go find a place where you can just yell at God. All right? Now, don't do it in church because that'll weird us out just a little bit, all right? All right? I mean, this is actually what, what Hannah did is, is she went to the, the temple and she, she prayed. Now, she prayed silently in her heart, but her mouth was moving, and it struck Eli so much because he could tell that she was in deep distress, that, that, that it was obvious that she was, her heart was being moved. And so if you're carrying that burden, if you're carrying that grief, if you're carrying that anger and that bitterness at God, tell him. Find a way, find a place, and let it out and let it go. But don't build up this wall of resistance. Don't try to run away. But instead, I think the next lesson that we can learn from Hannah is that she chose persistence with God instead of resistance of God. She chose to be persistent. Year after year, they went. 
And even as she poured out her heart in verse 12, it said, as she continued praying before the Lord, she persisted in a relationship with God. Even after years of disappointment, even after years of being mad, even after seeing this growing family over here and all alone over here, she continued to go to God and she was persistent with God. Even if you slay me, I will hope. And that's the choice. So we can choose to run from God. God's going to run after you. There's nowhere we we can hide from his presence, but God invites us to keep praying, to knock and knock and knock. Seek and it will be given to you. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Ask and you shall find. This is God. He wants us to seek him out, to be persistent. And so as, as she prayed, Eli saw her heart and he responded, go in peace and the God of Israel grant the petition that you have made to him. And so as your pastor, I want you to know that God has heard your cries. He has heard your tears. He knows what you are going through and that he doesn't just being like, oh, there she goes again, crying again to me, but that he cares. Whatever you've gone through, the pain and misery you're experiencing, it doesn't just fall on deaf ears. It doesn't just stop at the ceiling. You know, sometimes we pray and and we say, God, I don't even know if you're there. But God hears it. I love the way that Psalm 56, 8 says it. You've, God, kept track of every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. Each tear is entered into your ledger. Each ache is written in your book. So God knows the years and the tears that you have cried And he invites us to persist. And we didn't read, we didn't go on and read the the scripture, but verse 19 and 20 says it this way. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. The Lord remembers us. And in due time, now it doesn't tell us when that was. Was that right away? Was that years from now? It does not tell us. But in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And she had this baby that was born. Now, she made this extraordinary promise in which if the Lord would give her a child, that she would give the child back to God. What an extraordinary thing. What's most important to you, a child? I want to give it back to you. And this is the practice of the Christian life. It's the gifts we have from God. We give them back to the Lord and we say, Lord, do with it what you will. Samuel became this great prophet of the Lord. And obviously, First and Second Samuel, two books that were inspired by the beginning of this story. And so kids, in box four, I invite you to draw a picture of Hannah holding her baby and the joy that was on her face. Now, the truth is, is that sometimes, like Hannah, you get the outcome that you are looking for. You prayed and prayed and prayed for a baby, and you get one. You pray and you pray for somebody to be healed. It doesn't look good for a while, but it ends up that person gets healed, and and it's wonderful. But then other times, you pray and you pray for a child, and that child never comes. You pray and pray for the one, and that one never comes. You pray and pray that this person would be healed and things look good for a while, and then something suddenly turns bad. And I cannot come up here and tell you why. 
I wish I had good explanation for why this person gets healed and this person doesn't. I wish I understood that. I wish I could bring clarity to this. Now, here's what I believe as a pastor, is that we pray and some people are healed. And I believe that they are healed because we pray. That there are people who are healed because God's people have prayed. Now, I can't say why it's not 100%. But if I pray for 100 people and 10 of those people get better that otherwise they wouldn't have, that is a great gift to the world and to showing the goodness of God. And one of the things that we don't always understand is how God is working and what God is doing. Like probably most of us, I have prayed that this pandemic would end sooner than it is going to end. Like, God, just wipe it out. Do a miracle. We'll all praise and worship you. We'll give you all the credit. And I wonder why, God, haven't you? But I also don't know. Maybe God has saved us from many a pandemic in the last hundred years. And maybe God is doing more that we don't ever see than what we do see. And so I think it's really important for us to understand that the world's outcomes, what happens in this life, is not the ultimate revealing of God's goodness. What happens here is not the ultimate reality of who God is and what God can do, but that God can take whatever happens here and use it for good. As I was working on this sermon, I listened to a sermon by Craig Rochelle, and I loved what he had to say. And I think this is a lesson from this story as well, is that with God, a waiting season is never a wasted season. You see, you may feel like that you have been buried, that you have been stepped on, and that you are going to just lie there and die. But maybe instead of being buried, you're being planted for new life that's going to grow. You may feel that this situation and this story is going to crush you, but instead of crushing you, it makes you stronger and you're able to be a better person. You're able to inspire others because of what you've went through, that a waiting season is never a wasted season. And if you feel like that you are like Hannah and that you have been knocking on the door waiting for God to be good, I believe that God is doing something even when we don't see him and that he specializes in resurrection and in goodness and in life, and he finds a way to redeem pain and brokenness. And so it was a few years ago when I had that funeral service for that six-year-old boy, I didn't have the words. As a pastor, I pride myself on knowing what to say. But when you're confronted with a situation like that, I was just helpless, and so I was like, Lord, show me. I should do that more often, but I don't know, for some reason when we're desperate is when we are most open to God. And so God took me to John chapter 11. Now this is a, an incredible story about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And there's so much in this story. I, I, I could preach a second sermon, but I won't, all right? About this text in and of itself. But there's some incredible details in there that just are fabulous for us. So Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. Lazarus' sister, Mary and Martha, they were friends of Jesus. It's amazing that the God of the universe, when he was walking around as a person, had friends and with regular people like you and I. And so he was away from them when he got word that Lazarus was sick and then when he got word that Lazarus had died. Now what it says is that when he got word that Lazarus had died, we get our shortest scripture in all of the Bible, two words, Jesus 
wept. Now, this is extraordinary when you think about it because Jesus knows exactly what he's about to do. He is going to go and going to go resurrect Lazarus from the dead. But yet he still weeps. And that tells me that even if God is able to redeem our pain, and I believe he's able to, he still weeps with us. We don't just cry tears into the nothingness. We cry tears with the God of the universe. He weeps when we weeps. And so then he goes and he makes this journey, and we find this confrontation between Martha and Jesus. And Martha says exactly what she wants to say. She's honest with God, and she's honest with Jesus. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Have you said that before to Jesus? Lord, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have been abused. My friend wouldn't have lost their spouse. Lord, if you had been here, the suicide wouldn't have happened. I don't know what it is. Lord, if you had been here, he can handle that. And Jesus didn't say, Martha, I had other business to do. He didn't come at her. Instead, he invited her to a conversation and to healing. And she believed in Jesus because she said these words, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give her. And Jesus spoke these words. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But then Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, Jesus does not just redeem or resurrect. He is the resurrection. He is the one that has conquered death. He is the one that has entered into pain and darkness and misery and death and has led the way out of it. This is who God is is. This is who Jesus is. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And that he makes a way when there seems to be no way. And he goes on and says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks these words, do you believe this? And I think that's the question he has for all of us, is even in the face of death, even in the face of darkness, even in the face of your pain, whatever it is, whatever you've been crying out to God, do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that even though we die, life is possible? Do you believe that Jesus can redeem all things, including that thing? She said, yes. Do you? Do you believe that God can take your heartache? And find a way to redeem it for good. Do you believe that a waiting season is not a wasted season? And can you believe that this wall needs to be torn down between you and God? Can you trust him again? And so the story goes on and it tells us that Jesus went to the tomb and had it opened up. Now Lazarus had been in there a few days and they were saying, why would you do this? Like it stinks back there. But he's like, open it up. And so they open up the tomb, and, and I'll never forget, I heard, the, I heard uh, Bishop Hayes, who was our former bishop of Oklahoma, he, he preached a sermon, and I won't ever forget what he said, because Jesus goes in there and he says, Lazarus, get up. And he said, he said he had to say Lazarus, because if he had just said, get up, everybody in the tombs would have come out. Lazarus, get up. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb. 
Now, it would be terrible to be a friend with Lazarus after that. Because it would be like, well, Jesus loves me, this I know. How do you know Jesus loves you, right? They go around the circle in Sunday school class. How have you experienced the goodness of God? Oh, well, he healed me from this. Oh, oh, he taught me this. Oh, he raised me from the dead. This is who God is. This is who God is for each and every one of us. So I don't necessarily know your story, but I know that you have one. And probably somewhere in your story is this pain and this anger and this bitterness that you may have towards God. And I believe that God wants to hear from you. He wants you to be honest. He invites that from you. Be honest. Be persistent. And be hopeful that a waiting season is not a wasted season. Thank you for listening to the Mustang UMC podcast. Once again, our services are at 8.30 and 10.50 a.m. every Sunday morning, and we would love to see you there. For more information about the Mustang United Methodist Church, please visit us at mustangumc.org or email us at office at mustangumc.org. That is office at mustangumc.org. We hope you enjoyed.